if someone asks you to uh, identify uh, the three most important teachings or doctrines in the scriptures, what would those three be? And what if they asked you to boil it down to one doctrine, the most important teaching or doctrine in all of scripture, what would you say? I imagine there would be a, a number of, of competing teachings in our minds for uh, the most important or the three uh, most important uh, perhaps our minds, some of our minds might go to the doctrine of God's sovereignty, his, his providential hand over all things, or the teaching of the atonement of Christ, what happened on the cross of Jesus Christ. Perhaps our minds would go to Jesus' teaching about the greatest commandment in all of Scripture from Deuteronomy 6, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, uh, and strength. Well, I'm confident that among those competing for the most important would be the doctrine of justification by grace through faith in Christ. And as we continue in the book of Habakkuk into uh, chapter 2, we see the emergence of good news. And it centers on this theme of justification by faith. As the prophet Habakkuk is facing very difficult circumstances, he's perplexed and he has his questions to the Lord, yet we see good news emerge, and it centers on that theme of justification by faith. Sometimes very good news uh, comes in surprising places, and it comes right here in the heart of Habakkuk. So it's Habakkuk chapter 2, uh, verses 1 through 4. First, the prophet's words in verse 1, and then the Lord's response. So listen now to God's word. Habakkuk says, I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he, the Lord, will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. And then the Lord answered me, write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so he may run who reads it. For still, the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. But the righteous shall live by his faith. We have seen in weeks past that Habakkuk, a prophet called by God, is living in a historically difficult and perplexing time. Perhaps we would see ourselves living in increasingly difficult times. For Habakkuk, it's the 7th century B.C., and God's people, universally really, in the north and the south, have spiraled spiritually downward and downward. The northern kingdom of Israel had been exiled in the previous century, in 722, by the Assyrians, the dominant empire in that time. That was an act of God's judgment because of the sin of his people. Now Habakkuk, a century or so later, is witnessing the rise of another empire, the Babylonians. They're rising in power. They will become the dominant empire in the ancient Near East in his day. And they will eventually lay siege to the city of God, to Jerusalem, and destroy the very temple of God, another act of God's own judgment. And here Habakkuk 
like his contemporary, the prophet Jeremiah, known as the weeping prophet because he was called by the Lord to bring a very hard message of judgment to his people. Here we have Habakkuk, his contemporary, also weeping in a sense and crying out to the Lord. And we saw his cry in the last couple of weeks. His questions and his crying out to the Lord in chapter 1, verse 2. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? That is, why, Lord, this seeming delay in bringing judgment upon the wicked? And then another question in the next verse, chapter 1, verse 3. Why do you make me see iniquity? And why, Lord, do you idly look at wrong? That is, why this apparent disinterest, Lord, in advancing your righteousness in the world? So what does Habakkuk do with these questions? We are told in our own text here, he goes to the watch post, the city's watch post, a kind of watchtower or a lookout designed to see one's enemies when they're approaching. He goes there to see how, how the Lord might respond. And then the Lord responds. And in the Lord's response, in his wonderful wisdom, he answers a question far more important than the questions that the prophet is actually bringing to the Lord. Yes, he answers those questions, but he answers a more important question. Habakkuk is coming with questions of how long the delay in bringing judgment. How long, O Lord? Why the apparent disinterest? But the Lord... Yes, I think he answers those questions. He answers a more important question, which is, what is most essential for you, prophet, for you, man or woman of God, to know in a time of trouble? What do you need to know? And his answer comes in the fourth verse of chapter 2. The Lord says, behold, his soul is puffed up. He's referring to the Babylonian king. The Babylonians are rising in power. His soul is puffed up. It's not upright within him. But here's what you need to know. The righteous shall live by faith. The righteous shall live by faith. I think we can put it this way. The righteous or the justified, the holy man, the holy woman of God lives by faith. At all times and certainly in times of distress or uncertainty, this is an essential truth to know. If you're looking for a life verse, this is one well worth adopting. I have a friend a number of years ago who showed me in his wallet, he, bring, he always carries around a little card with a sentence or two that captures his life purpose in the Lord to remind him, particularly in, in seasons of trial or difficulty, this is why uh, why I'm here. This is what I exist for. This is my purpose. Well, these words serve that kind of end. The righteous shall live by faith. They are, they're, they're like a compass for the godly living in a treacherous wasteland or lost world. They help get your coordinates, your bearings, and reorient you to what is most important. What's Habakkuk most concerned with? He's most concerned with how God is relating to the world around him. Why this injustice? Important question. 
Hard question. But the Lord is grabbing the prophet, prophet's attention by saying to him, you need to know what your relationship is to me. Do you know that? Are you confident of that? You do not need to know first what I will do with the unrighteous or when. You need to know what makes you righteous and just and holy. And more than a compass, these words are like light breaking through darkness because these words are at the heart of the Christian gospel. Not one time, two times, but three times, verse 4 of Habakkuk 2 is quoted in the New Testament by the New Testament authors, pointing to the good news found in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Isn't it wonderful how the gospel emerges at times in the least likely places? Can we picture it? Habakkuk is standing on the watchtower. He's perplexed. He's waiting to see what God might do to his enemies. But the word that comes is a word of gospel ultimately to him and to all who has ears to hear. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. So I want us to consider how these words are used in the New Testament in the three places that the authors cite them. These words, the righteous shall live by his faith, or the righteous, the just shall live by faith, first come in the first chapter of Romans 1. Romans 1, 16 and 17. Paul writes this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, for in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. Righteousness comes by faith, and righteousness is lived out by faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. The gospel, Paul is saying, reveals God's righteous, his unique, his marvelous way of redeeming a people. That's part of what Paul is driving at. That this way of salvation is not by human merit. It's not by a scale in which our good outweighs our sin. Rather, the gospel comes by grace, through faith, that we are then justified and righteous. What is this faith? The righteous shall live by faith. It's not a, a blind leap, a kind of guesswork. Biblical faith is not irrational thinking. This faith is not what, what surfaces or begins when we can't reason any further. Faith in Scripture is a saving grace. It's a line or rope that tethers and unites God's people to Jesus Christ in which his righteousness becomes ours like a branch united to a vine. And this is why Paul can say elsewhere, God made him, Christ, who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. And what this means, among other things, is that the Christian is acceptable. Is acceptable. Do you ever feel unacceptable? We all say unacceptable things. We all do 
unacceptable things, deeds. But the gospel is that by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, we're justified, we're just, we're made righteous. God accepts us. You're acceptable to Almighty God. We remember John Newton's words. I'm not what I ought to be. I'm not what I want to be. I'm not what I hope to be in another world. But still, I am not what I once used to be. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. I am what I am. What might we be tempted to insert there? I am what I am because of my education. I am what I am because of my image or my accomplishments or my hard work ethic because I have my life somewhat put together uh, because my kids are successful. I am what I am. No, I am what I am because of his grace. Some people have called this gospel amnesia. When we forget the gospel, we forget the good in the good news. And whether it's in Habakkuk's day or our own, it's easy to forget that what matters perhaps most is God's relationship to you, your relationship to God, that you have been made acceptable to him. These words from Romans and Habakkuk changed one man forever. And through that man, in a lot of ways, changed the whole world. I'm referring to the reformer Martin Luther. Uh, Many of us know Luther's story. Uh, Once an obscure Roman Catholic monk, though he was religiously devout in his prayers and fasting and penance, he was overwhelmed at a point in his life by this sense of guilt and this question of how can a man be made right and acceptable to God. And in his deep wrestling with the Lord, he came to those words in Romans 1. And Luther said this, When by the Spirit of God I understood these words, The just shall live by faith. Then I felt born again like a new man. I entered through the open doors into the very paradise of God. Interestingly, years later, his youngest son, Paul Luther, would write these words. In the year 1544, my late dearest father, in the presence of us all, narrated the whole story of his journey to Rome. He acknowledged with great joy that in that city, through the spirit of Jesus Christ, he had come into the knowledge of the truth of the everlasting gospel. It happened this way, as he repeated his prayers on the ladder and staircase, the words of the prophet Habakkuk came suddenly to his mind, the just shall live by faith. Thereupon he seized his prayers, returned to Wittenberg, and took this as the chief foundation of all his doctrine. Is this truth a paradise for us? Where we bask in the glorious presence of God, because he has made us righteous. Well, there's a second place we see these words. We heard them read earlier in the New Testament reading, and that is in Galatians chapter 3. The Apostle Paul, again, writing, Galatians 3, 11 through 13. Paul writes, now it, it's evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith. 
He says, but the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it's written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. These words flow very well from Romans chapter 1. In Romans, the message is that God has righteously and uniquely provided a salvation, a work not of man, but by grace through faith in Christ. Well, here in Galatians, the emphasis shifts a bit to communicate that since you have been justified, you've been made righteous by grace through faith, that you have been freed from what Paul calls here the curse of the law. And I think perhaps one of the greatest challenges the church and the believer has faced throughout history is how to rightly, appropriately relate to the commandments of God. What kind of relationship is the believer to have to the commandments? On the one hand, Paul tells us in Romans 8 that the law is good. In that great chapter on uh, the law of God, the uh, 119th Psalm, we hear those words, how I love your law. It's my meditation all day. It's sweeter than honey to my mouth. Psalm 1 reminds us that the man who meditates on the law of God is like a tree planted by streams of water, yielding much fruit. So what does Paul mean here in Galatians when he speaks of the curse of the law? Well, I would suggest he means that that which is a blessing can become a curse when it is mishandled or misused or misapplied. God did not give his law as a way to communion or as a way to life or reconciliation with God. Through the law, we are not justified. We are not reconciled. We are not regenerated. That was the thinking of the Pharisees. To seek to use God's law as a means to stand just and righteous before God is to run into a brick wall. It will crush that person. And it will leave them crushed. To get through that wall, to have life and communion with the Lord, is an impossibility through the law. No one will be justified by works of the law. And there's important wisdom and application for us as Christians to measure the worth of our lives or the status or position of our lives be before God by our obedience is very dangerous. It can leave us in mere shame and guilt. If we seek to use the law in that way, the law will bite us. Some of us have a, at home a close a pet, a cat or a dog that we call our own. I think they say a dog is man's best friend. So what do you do for your pet? You, you care for that pet. You feed it. You attend to it. You love it. But what happens if you neglect it? If you mistreat it? If you snap at it? That dog may bite you. It may bite you. And this is true of God's law. When it is used in a way that God never intended to somehow give me a just standing before God, it will bite. 
it will leave one only crushed. But, like a pet, if you handle it rightly, it will be a best friend. That's why our confession speaks of God's law not as a way to life with God, but as a rule, a path of life that we are to walk in response to the life that God has graciously and freely given to us in Jesus Christ by faith. Then his commands become a delight, a joy, a way to express our love for his grace and his redeeming work in Christ. The law is good. It reminds us like a mirror of our own sin. It reminds us, therefore, of our need for the mercy of God. It tells us what is pleasing to God. And it is a path, a stream of water, so that when we plant ourselves like a tree beside it, it feeds our souls. Habakkuk needed to remember this, that though the wicked surround him, though his own sin would condemn him, yet one would come who would take upon himself the curse that disobedience brought. Christ redeemed us from the curse by becoming a curse for us. And that this Savior and this grace is His and it is ours by faith. Well, that leads us to the final use of these words in Habakkuk, which come in Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews 10, 36 For you have need, people of God, of endurance, so that when you've done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls." Here in a passage emphasizing endurance and pressing forward in the Christian life, the author of Hebrews draws from Habakkuk to speak about a faith that perseveres. This is a faith, in other words, that is durable, that sustains. It's a faith that has an eye toward the blessed hope of our future. So as it calls us to endure by faith in the 10th chapter, we turn to chapter 11 of Hebrews and we see that great hall of faith in which all those Old Testament saints are mentioned who demonstrated this kind of enduring faith. Abel and Noah and Abraham and Moses, example after example of those who by faith were looking, enduring and looking to that better country, that heavenly city. And then we come to the 12th chapter of Hebrews. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin. Let us run the race set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. Whatever trial or fear or hardship the people of God may experience, this faith we see has as its object the Lord Jesus Christ. As they say, it's not as important the amount of your faith, but the object of your faith. 
Great faith in a false god amounts to nothing, but small faith in a great savior is everything. And this faith has as its object Jesus Christ. And in the end, while this faith beholds Christ and trusts Christ, it is Christ who has the firm grip upon his people. He is the founder of this faith. And he's the one who matures this faith and brings it to perfection. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, how we thank you that we are justified and made righteous by your mercy and through the gift of faith by which we rest in Jesus Christ. Lord, may you cause a, a teaching in Scripture familiar to many of us rest more deeply in our hearts, that we would know in our minds and by way of experience the freedom that you've given to us to draw near to you, to rest in you, that it would well up in us a great joy That which the world does not have, you have granted to the church to be able to have assurance in our life with you. We pray, O Lord, that you would cause us by this faith in you to continue to endure and to persevere with thanksgiving in our hearts for all that you have done through the cross and the resurrection of Christ. Continue to be with us, Lord, as we participate in the Lord's Supper. For this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.